You don't have to stay anywhere forever. Neil Gaiman from The Kindly Ones. He's kind of crazy. She's a little insane. Keeping energy really messes with his brain. One is divorced. The other's husband is dead. That's why it's so messed up in the head. It's a Silver Linings Playcast. Oh, yeah. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Silver Linings Playcast. I'm your host, Jamie Ward, and as far as I know, this is the only podcast solely devoted to talking about Silver Linings Playbook, the movie, and the Silver Linings Playbook, the book. Yeah, so we're back. Um, I hope everybody had a good week. Why? Because uh, I had a week. Guess what? No news. We're not going to go into anything personal. I find uh, I'm, I'm awake. I've been standing up, exercising, eating well getting out, doing lots of things, working. Uh, so that's all that really matters, right? We did it. Am I happy? Am I doing okay? Can we know? I mean, can we really know? I think, uh, uh, I think that this podcast has become exactly the thing that I love most all in the world. And when I say love most all in the world, it's actually based on the philosophy that can you love anything? In the world, existentialism. That's right. I want to say I watched one of the most amazing movies I've ever seen. It was a movie called Under the Silver Lake. It's an A24 film. It came out, I think it was actually made, I believe, I believe, I did not do my research. It uh, it was made in like 2017, 2018. Took a couple years to get, it got delayed in its release. Uh, A24 is, if you don't know, a movie production studio that has just been uh, known for putting out extremely high quality movies. Um, you know, they did, uh, come off the top of my head, they did uh, Midsommar, uh, did Good Time, uh, what's the uncut gem, um, Basically, everything they've made has been amazing. Uh, they made The Green Knight, which recently came out, which is a fantastic mythology-based movie telling it's a modern retelling of the Arthurian legend of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And it's sort of, it's a modern-day classic, philosophical, mythological, and exactly my kind of movie. Now, Under the Silver Lake is also exactly my kind of movie. That's why I love A24. One, one, one of my favorite things is I watch A24 movies, and then when I get done, I usually have to go on YouTube, and I will watch like 15 YouTube videos on people's analysis of the movies, explaining the ending, reacting, and reviewing, because I usually watch movies way after they come out, so I don't really have anybody to talk to. I also watch a lot of movies that a lot of my friends don't really like, so sometimes I can't have conversations to them about it. Now, Under the Silver Lake was very interesting because it barely had any YouTube videos about people talking about it. Why? It's an amazing movie. It's like a two-and-a-half-hour movie. It's a neo-noir movie. It has a very... Um, here's the thing I'm going to say. Uh, um, visually, cinematically... It is not uh, anything resembling a David Lynch film at all, 
but if you like David Lynch films, it very much feels like that. I, that's partially because he's a big neo-noir and noir-inspired uh, creator, right? Um, but this was a totally different... I mean, yeah, when I, when I was watching it, I felt very much like this is a very um, blue velvet... Uh, it feels a little bit like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It is a one of the, you know um, a lot of neo noir films. I'll just go to, to the slight description because nobody ever heard it. And here's the thing too: I've actually had it come up in my recommended watches from the algorithms. I, I think it's on Amazon Prime right now, and it uh, is a film that I never wanted to watch because one, the cover is terrible. It actually looked. The, the cover is Andrew Garfield, but I could not even tell that from the art. It looked like the guy from Lonely Island, not Andy Samberg. And so <laughs> just like, I don't really want to watch this, even though algorithms are very smart and it keeps telling me I like it. And then the other day I hovered over it and it said neo-noir. And like, I, I realized that it wasn't what I was thinking, but just with so many great options of things I've never seen and things that I want to see, like why waste your time watching something that there's a chance you're probably not going to like, right? So I I clicked on it because it was like 4 o'clock in the morning um, because I've been staying up uh, almost 24 hours is at a time. Actually, more than that. In fact, I have been sleeping so little. I've been sleeping like 4 to 6 hours every 48 hours. Uh, that might be partially because of my diet. That partially might be because well, I'm told you, I'm not going to go into that stuff. It doesn't matter. Here's the thing. Right. Um, so anyway, I watched it and it, it uh, one, it is, uh, an amazing performance by Andrew Garfield. I don't think there was any doubt that he was necessarily a great actor, but I'd only seen him in like Spider-Man things. The best, the best like dramatic perform and and we don't really judge superhero movies the you know comedies horrors horror superhero movies action films we don't really judge those just with our preconceived stereotypes and norms the way we judge trauma movies just like regular oscar bait movies or indie films right so you know we'd seen andrew garfield in in the social network and he was great. He was fantastic. This, this is him. This is a movie. Like if, if you're the least bit a fan of him, he, um, I don't want to say he makes this film because there's so many wonderful things about it. It is wonderfully cast. It is wonderfully performed in a lot of these neo-noir films. The setting is often very much a character. You could say Hollywood is a, is a driving character, a protagonist of this film. It's a film that uh, it loves film. It is a film, it's very timely. It's probably even more timely now than it was when it came out. It, um, it talks about, uh, and here's the wonderful thing about it. There's a lot of movies that have come out that are, they're supposed to be deep, they're supposed to be like, oh, this is this is a movie that is commenting on the dark underside of the entertainment industry and Hollywood's dark side. 
this is a movie that is even bigger than those things. It taught it both addresses sort of the dark side of, of entertainment, the industry, the city, uh, it's big on conspiracy theory. And then I think it sort of breaks the fourth wall in commenting on how you as an audience member are watching this. It breaks you down. You're watching this and you're like, I think I'm smart. I'm understanding what this says. And then I'll tell you, it throws you this little notion of weight of like, don't be impressed with yourself. Uh, everybody thinks this way this time. Everybody puts these pieces together. Maybe there's something even more than what you're watching right now that you're, you think you're getting. And it's just this mind blowing mystery sort of, but in the way that neo-noir things are where, you know, it's like, it'll start out sort of, uh, with like a traditional mystery setup and then it goes on a little bit and then it just gets more tangled and twisted and confusing and interesting with just dripping with symbolism. I love, I love neo-noir films, film noir things largely because I think these are the, some of the genres of movies that really use cinema completely for the format, the medium that it is, right? If you, if you're only into telling a good story, you might be able to make a book out of it. You could make a song, a ballad out of it. You can make a movie out of it. Um, but the thing about movies is movies are visual. They're, they're sound, they're story, they're acting. And a good neo-noir film will use all of those to create an experience. So I highly recommend Under the Silver Lake if you like that kind of thing. One, it is very existential. I, when, I, when I look up reviews and sort of analysis of a lot of my favorite TV shows, movies, and things, I often find that the things that are some of my absolute favorite and I'm very drawn to tend to have existential readings of them. Uh, one of the most recent things that I saw, uh, it's sort of like a very cliche thing to say, um, Netflix's show You. I think it was actually either A&E or Lifetime originally, and a book before that, but You, that uh, that is a, a show that is very existential. Uh, one of my favorite, one of my favorite things of all time, uh, it's an anime series back from the 90s, Neon Genesis Evangelion, that is that is sort of like almost the benchmark of existential entertainment. Um, a lot of Eastern media, specifically Japan, I think, I, I think Japan even more than, than Korea because um, it's, it, existentialism has a very interesting relation to religion. And Japan is a totally different religious uh, country than Korea. Um, here's a, a lot of, here's the thing. A lot of the existentialists from the existential movement were, were atheists. However, existentialism is not inherently atheism. 
uh, they're kind of different things with, it's like a Venn diagram of them crossing over. What is existentialism for somebody that might not even be familiar with that? And I'm not that smart. This is all wicked stuff that I just got little definitions right before I come on so that I can talk about you. I I understand some of this stuff at a level where it's like, I get it. I feel that I could have a basic conversation with somebody that, that at a hobby level likes this, but I'm not a professor. I don't read uh, too much into this stuff deeply. I, I read a bunch of it for fun, but it's sort of like the way I play guitar. I've taken like 10 years of level one guitar lessons. Why? Because I, I will take lesson year one lessons and then not play it for a while, forget, and then I have to start all over. So it's like, I'm super familiar with the basic facts. I know the basic fingerings, but I don't uh, know how to have that deep of a conversation about it. Anyway, existentialism was a philosophical movement that sort of started in the mid 19th century in Europe. It sort of, it peaked around the 20th century in France. Um, so a bunch of Europeans, like a lot of Germans, there's Dutch, uh, French, um, a lot of, a lot of the, the big guys, you might know these names, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, Frederick Nietzsche, Martin Heidegger, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, one of my favorite authors of late, and little school, uh, Albert Camus, um, wrote The Stranger, wrote The Myth of Sisyphus. He didn't write the actual mythology of Sisyphus, but a book, The Myth of Sisyphus, based on the Greek mythology of Sisyphus. Um, yeah. So... And they, they also break down, so so there's sort of a subset of existentialism, nihilism, which is, let's go back to the existentialist overarching concept, that basically life is absurd. We can't guess, control, know, understand why things happen. They just do. Here's where That's why I think it overlies with atheism a lot of times, because you can sort of take the hardline approach of none of this matters because there is no guiding force. Um, you can also take the approach, though, that uh, there's, there's no guiding force, but that's because, like, maybe we don't define a god or supreme being as, you know, like an anthropomorphic being so much as maybe it's just principles of, like how things work can you find god in yourself is your freedom of free will is that an expression of god of the universe i don't even know i don't even think about these things i just like watching big robots fight in a 1990s cartoon neon genesis evangelion uh anyway you have that and so basically the existentialists were sort of like breaking with a lot of the philosophical movements that had come up to that time where everybody was trying to understand things through through different um you know building upon one another's movements and these guys were like hey maybe maybe nothing matters let's find out if that if the fact that nothing matters matters Right. And then you sort of have like a little tree branching sub part of existentialism. I don't know if it, you consider it like, like they're really nihilism. Okay. So, so nihilism is basically this approach of existentialism with yes, nothing matters. And so 
nothing matters. Whereas the more traditionally accepted existentialist was like, nothing matters. So everything you do then matters. Um, uh, let's start with Kierkegaard, who is one of my favorite philosophers. He was sort of like one of these guys that's like, if we can't know what we're doing, uh, no, I mean, like, if we, if, if life has no meaning, then every single, every single thing we get to do defines the meaning. Uh, and it is a much more positive way of thinking it. And then, then you go to, uh, the two biggest sort of nihilists out of the guys that I just mentioned were, uh, Frederick Nietzsche and Martin Heidegger, who were, were much more, they take this nihilist approach of like, nothing matters, so nothing matters. Well, let's go to one of my favorite things of all time. Can you guess what that is? Well, you're already here, so you probably know Silver Linings Playbook, the movie, and the Silver Linings Playbook, the book. And you have this character, Pat Peoples, who basically, I don't, uh, it's, he never actually goes out to the point of saying nothing ever matters, but if you sort of subtract, here's the thing, I think you almost have, you have Tiffany Maxwell that comes in as this outside force to sort of be like, why, why was my husband killed? Uh, I'm sad. Your, your wife left you, she cheated on you, and then you went, you like, you were always a good man, and then you went crazy. And then you have these two people that are sort of like having a life reset, a young adult midlife crisis reset where they're sort of at this moral neutral. They have pasts and, and then you have these, these viewpoints. Now it's a very, I think it is actually a very existential movie, but it takes a very, very positive approach to it. In fact, the book has far heavier religious overtones than the the film does but because i mean you have this character pat solitano pat peoples who's basically saying i'm gonna make the best of everything he takes real control he's a person that believes in free will he's a person that chases what he wants even if that thing is not real even if he's insane even if he's come out of a mental institution and everybody around him can't see what he sees, he defines his actions and he is motivated to do the things he wants. And he has moments where he breaks down. If he ha if he is suffering from bipolar, that, that, that maybe he has these moments where he thinks that nothing is good. Why? He has a real breakdown when, let's go with the movie, he's reading Hemingway's um, farewell to arms. And he's like, why is this have a sad ending? That's not fair, which is, and then he throws it out the window and he's like, why can't I have a happy ending? And so it's weird. He's basically, he's rejecting the nihilist part of existentialism at that point and picking up his own mantra excelsior, which now, now that I'm thinking about it, is that sort of symbolic a symbol of him saying like existentialism probably not it's probably an overread because i think it would be a little more neutral um excelsior is definitely like a positive thing he's saying to motivate himself and i think existentialism on a, of an of itself is not uh baseline 
defining itself as something that would motivate you to be better. You sort of, you go into existentialism and then you decide, I am going to take the more positive approach, the, the Sartre approach, the Kierkegaard approach, and say, I'm going to define myself, my life, my actions, my ambitions as good because it doesn't matter. Nobody can tell me. It's like this, this is, this is the, the, Eight 19th century philosophical version of these dudes saying, you do you, you do you. That's what just, they're probably saying it in French or German or Dutch or whatever, whichever one they want. Now my favorite one, well, one of my favorite ones, and I think, I think I've talked about it before. I don't remember though. Um, Camus and the Stranger is one of my favorite books because it is one of the only books I've read. You put that on the list of of uh, The Great Gatsby, The Stranger, The Little Prince. After, since, since I've discovered it, The Silver Linings Playbook, there's probably like two more. There's probably like two more books that I've read in life. But it's about this guy. Here's the thing, okay? I'm going to tell you this straight up. The Stranger is almost like Silver Linings Playbook if Pat meets all the opportunities that he's given in the Silver Linings Playbook and rejects seeing the good in them. And he sees the neutral in them. Like, if if uh, Tiffany tells him it could still be a date if they order Raisin Bran, uh, The Stranger, Pat would be like, it could be or couldn't be a date. Whatever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we call it. We're just people doing this thing. It is. And oddly, if anybody knows me and understands my mental state, process, personality type, it's odd. It might not be what, and I don't want to sound super special, but what everybody Thanks. Let's go off Myers-Briggs percentages. I think, uh, I think that like 8% of people are ENTPs, which sounds like it's pretty elite until you realize there's 16 different personality types. So so it's about average. It's about an average distribution because with 16, there's none of them have, uh, more than 10%. They range from, I think 10% of the population to 2%. Of the population. So it's like an average amount. There's a normal distribution of people that are my personality types out there. But if you measure that against the 15 other personality types that are not yours, um, everybody is in the minority, right? So we all, every kind of mindset is sort of unique. The only, the only kind of people that think you're, hey, I'm super unique and I'm dumb are the people that sort of see these binary divides in society. If you're, if you're only dividing people amongst like introverts or extroverts, well, it might be like a 50, 50 breakdown. I don't know what it is, but you're only giving two options and there's going to be one set set of people that are in the majority and one people that are in the minority unless they're half, but nobody's really special in that way. So all I'm saying is that there's, um, I don't think that a, a majority of the population uh, specifically would have the same type of 
reaction to the feeling about existentialism necessarily as ENTPs, also INTPs, uh, also INTJs uh, and ENTJs. So that's far. So that's about a half. If if assuming all of those were eight to ten percent, you have like a third to a half. You have about a twenty-five to thirty-ish percent of the population probably has the mindset of like existentialism is actually a very calming philosophy to study for people like me. I always talk about how I sort of, I like, I wish there was a, a drug that I could find that, that my body could both tolerate and that was okay, but would also like help me calm my mind because I, I overthink way too much. There's too many voices going on. There's too many thoughts and I love them. I want them all to exist. There's, it's not, I'm not schizophrenic. I'm not somebody that's being plagued by having ideas or thoughts that I don't want to exist. There's just too many at a time. And sometimes they go too fast and sometimes they're hard to dissect. And I become paralyzed trying to analyze, uh, the, you know, which one to go with and to listen to what, what my mind should be having a conversation with. I'd be very interested to find out what is your Myers-Briggs type or such if, and how that affects whether you like Silver Linings Playbook or not and what kind of read you get. But anyway, as an ENTP, I definitely think that um, it's very calming to sort of think about nothing matters because when, when your brain is, is having too many thoughts go through it all the time, you want to settle it, you can sort of be okay with like, okay, th these things that I am thinking too much about don't have the dire consequences that my emotions might be associated with them. The chemicals in my brain might be making me weigh these thoughts and ideas way too heavily against one another. But in fact, if I can reduce my stress to realize that none of these even matter, then I'll know I'm right. Not because it's right or wrong, just because everything is right. It's because this is sort of the philosophy to fight for free will. I think last last week we actually were having a talk about determinism through versus free will, and I feel like most of most of the philosophical arguments, most of the, if you look at most of the philosophical evidence, really heavily, heavily favors determinism. But existentialism then asks a totally different question, like, does it matter at all? And I don't think it does. I was having a great conversation with Nick last week, and we were talking about that existentialism, not, not uh, the free will versus determinism. And I had this thought that I don't remember if I, did I say it last week? It does, why am I talking like I'm talking to a person I'm talking to and no one recorded out into the universe myself. I'm talking to my headphones, but it was like, you can, you can bet on sports and you got, you got an, an example of it is, um, determinism is like professional wrestling and free will is like prize fighting. It's like UFC boxing right? It's not scripted. So anything can happen. But here's the thing. If you, if you're not a writer for WWE, 
you don't know what's going to happen either. Maybe those people know what they're going to do, but us as observers, if you take, if you take that show, if you take both of those shows, UFC and WWE, if you take them both as metaphors for life, we don't know what's going to happen either way. And does it make any difference to us really whether there's a force influencing what happens or not? It doesn't matter because we always have the right to decide, even if we don't decide, but at least we can feel like we decide the significance we're going to find and how we choose to treat people based on our own things. And so I think that's what, what existentialism is really doing. It's taking this sidestepped question and saying, maybe there's another question. Does it matter? No, it doesn't. Let's make the most of things. Let's be the best. And that is why I am going to kill my... No, I'm just kidding. Well, am I kidding? I don't know. Let's... Hmm. That's actually how a lot of this came up. We were looking, doing a lot of research on on the I was I was researching the philosophical morality of death and because that's sort of one of the biggest things where you can see a stark divide between the the original existentialists and the nihilists and also libertarian philosophy not political libertarianism but the philosophical libertarianism um where where people are sort of like, you're in control of your own life. You should have the ability to do whatever you want. It's, it's similar. There's a reason that political libertarianism created the term. It's definitely influenced by philosophical libertarianism, but, but the philosophical isn't really applying itself, uh, limiting self to, uh, to the spectrum of politics and the affairs of people. It's sort of a bigger level of like, uh, you know, you you should be a, like we create a value um, and we should, and because nothing inherently has value, we have the ability to define value. We have the ability to define morality for ourselves individually, uh, collectively, possibly. And so, you know, you have these libertarian and nihilist philosophers that are sort of like people should be allowed to die if you if you hurt it should be now i'm not endorsing that at all i am just sort of uh recounting some of the research i've done into the topic of these what these guys thought and they wrote about it they they have writings about about this kind of thing where on the other hand you have a philosopher like soren kierkegaard who does not believe that suicide is a moral uh, thing. And, and his reasoning is this. It's like, if nothing ever matters, then what your, your prerogative as a human is, is to make the most of life. It's going to end anyway, eventually. To do the best thing you can is to find a meaning in that nothing by embracing it, acknowledging it, and creating, even if you create nothing, pat yourself on the back and say, we are God, that is the universe, that is reality, 
that is life and that is what we're doing. Then on the other hand, you know, you have the Niles Nietzsche. It's like, you want to do it and do it. Uh, so, um, you know, Pat is definitely, definitely on the more positive, the, the higher level existentialist level. If there's a spectrum of existentialism, he would be like more, you, you know that. It's a positively messaged movie, I think. Excelsior. Always keep trying, keep doing, maybe you'll have a chance to do better. You can tell it's too positive a movie. It's a fairy tale. It is. Why? Because Tiffany should be far more depressed than she is. She, are you, you want to talk about unrealistic expectations set forth by romantic comedies and romance films. Here's a mentally ill woman that has both gotten over her past trauma, dealt with herself, treats Pat with kindness and love, chases him, and doesn't, doesn't criticize him for his problems, helps him, heals him. Now, I'm, I'm not making this a gender thing. It's not, I'm not trying to say all crazy women are crazy. That's the characters in this story. The only thing we have to work with is Pat and Tiffany. And she is definitely a person that is far more healed than, um, I want to say a lot of the experiences that I've had in real life. Not, not as a criticism, I'm nowhere near where Pat was either. I'm not a Pat. I'm saying this is a fairy tale. This is the best case scenario between two people. I'm very much a Merceau from The Stranger, um, who, you know, partners up with people that are at about the same level of broken, uh, even in a different way. And then then are just like, huh, nothing ever matters. And then that's why it always crumbles uh, on me because we don't find that meaning and want to grow and, and find the significance in, uh, in nothing, in absurdity. I'm not saying that as a defeatist, but here's why even as much as I feel like a nihilist, I'm probably a little on the, the more upper... Ep- existentialist spectrum because I, I have never related more to last week. I thought I never related more to Pat than I ever have. And this week I've realized I've never related to Tiffany more than I ever have because I want to give myself every excuse to feel bad and feel sorry for myself and use all my past in my life and, and experiences to just say nothing will ever get better. And, and like, I can't, Yet, I haven't, I don't, I don't know what this, what's wrong with me or maybe what's right with me, but it's like, I, I, I still believe in things out there that are like good. Maybe even if not for me, they, they can happen. They can exist. I'm one of those people that's like, if one in a million exists, one in a million. Now I don't feel like that every day. I have been reading up and, and 
looking into the concept of bipolar disorder. I've been reading about it. I have read about it for a long time. I've been very familiar with it for a long time. I've just never really wanted to talk to uh, a head person about it because we've discussed my, my beliefs on this in the past. It doesn't really matter what you want to call the things I experience or what I go through. It doesn't matter. All I need to do is find ways to put parameters on the extremes of my behavior and my feelings. Help me gauge the highs, the lows, and help me find ways to identify why I am in those different points. And when I find myself in a dangerous point, can I recognize that behavior in myself, those thoughts in myself? Can I find anchors that I can sort of pull myself back, ground myself until I am at a more balanced place so that I can deal with those in a responsible, safe, and healthy way? Maybe even healing. Can I? I don't know. Uh, I'm definitely not doing it right now. I feel terrible. I'm just talking about physically, too. I am not eating well. I'm going to say that I'm eating so well. I am not eating healthy. I'm eating like 600 to 700 calories a day. Uh, I work out every day at, at 7 o'clock. And I often um, will uh, take a walk in the afternoon as well when I get done with work. So these are things that like on paper, if I was doing, if I was doing out of a more positive, pragmatic place, you'd be like, oh, those are good habits. I'm doing them out of the extreme to basically hurt my, not, I don't want to say to hurt myself, but I can't tell you how, um, like extreme they are with like, I'm, I just, I can't eat food that much, barely. I mean, I was trying to do a diet, but like I've been testing my ketone levels and they're too high. Like there's, there's supposed to be this amount, you limit your, the amount of carbs you take in so your body will produce ketones so you'll start burning fat in, uh, instead of carbs. But there's supposed to be a spectrum too. And when I tested myself, uh, one, I can barely, like I get so lightheaded when I'm standing there peeing on the little keto stick, when I walk around, I feel like I'm in a daze. I, I told you I'm having sleeping issues in extreme. This is what happens when I've been on this diet in extreme ways. Sometimes it's like, I'm too tired to fall asleep. So I'll just stay up for days at a time and lose track of time and, and lose track of where I am. My mind is so fuzzy. I can't recall facts or names or, places or times and maybe that's why I thought that Under the Silver Lake was such a good movie because I'm at a point where I can't understand it that well anymore <laughs> some if okay so if you haven't seen Under the Silver Lake and you're still not understanding what I'm talking about existential media I'm gonna give some examples of here's some other famous movies this is not like the top 10 listed movies one it's not a list of 10 at all but it is definitely some movies that there's a chance people are more likely to have seen than others. Uh, Taxi Driver, 2001 A Space Odyssey. That's like the most existential film you're ever going to see, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Blade Runner, Rosemary's Baby, The Third Man, Nosferatu, Breakfast at Tiffany's, 
Diabolique, like the whole French New Wave cinema movement from the 60s, which you know I love, love, uh, is basically based on existentialism, band apart, discreet charm of the bourgeoisie, jewels and gem, all, all highly existential movies. The Seventh Seal, uh, and like I said, Neon Genesis, Evangelion, one of my other favorite things, um, anime, uh, Fate, Zero, and of course, now I'm putting it on the list because it wasn't already there, Silver Linings Playbook, the movie, right? So I wonder what some of yours are, like what, what you can tell, um, Nick and I were talking about, uh, I don't remember what the term is. I wish we can. I'm going to have him back on soon so we can talk about this. But uh, we're, we're saying barometer movies, red flag movies. This is, and it's, it, it, uh, it, the context was brought up in the, in the context of he's, he's dating someone. And, and we had this conversation earlier on where it's sort of like, oh, she likes this movie. That's good. That's a good sign for like, I think she's somebody that you would get along with. And we're, so we're talking about like red flag, green flag movies and things and sort of like wondering, uh, what, and I think, I think I definitely should never be friends with people that like Silver Linings Playbook as much as I do, because that's just not right. Nobody should. I'm kind of kidding. Am I? I don't know. But does, does it even matter? Cowboy Bebop, that's, that is an existential anime that's becoming a live action on Netflix super soon. I think it's getting released uh, in a week or so, and that's very exciting because it's a space cowboy show. Most of the, most of the noir, noir film genres... And I'm talking like old original film noir from like the, you know, the twenties and thirties, um, are, cause I think, I think people were a lot more obsessed with this kind of thing too. Uh, you can see it as sort of like, like Gen X was very categorized with, by, it was very, it was very characteristic, characterized. Yeah. Maybe that's the right word. Is it? I don't know. Um, to of being sort of uh, a very nihilistic generation. Um, millennials being very existential. More pop- they're, they're depressed, but here's the difference. And I think this is the difference. I think that Gen X was very much like nothing matters, so nothing matters. Millennials have been very much like nothing matters, I'm depressed because I still expect to be happy. So they're disappointed. Whereas Gen X wasn't disappointed because they didn't feel they could be disappointed by anything else. So, so, and, and I know that's weird to say that existentialism was making, making millennials depressed because like I was saying, I don't think it's actually a depressing philosophy at all. But I'm, I'm also saying that, you know, as a millennial, we didn't all stop and just say, oh, let's apply 
an existentialist lens to everything that we see in the world and that we absorb, it's more like this deep-seated feeling that we don't understand where we're like, we, we're looking out and we see that nothing matters, but because we weren't raised by an existentialist generation, we are raised by a far more pragmatic generation who, who scoffs at this idea that nothing matters and tries to, to impose a significance of everything to everything. And this deterministic, um, you know, mindset to everything, we feel like we're not living up to that, right? We have these expectations that were put forth to us and we're like, but it doesn't even matter, right? We look like take Taco Bell for an example. Um, you know, you have the baby boomer generation that looks at a fast food thing and like it's a necessary evil, but they definitely don't value fast food places like that as the same quality because there's this expectation of, of like, Oh, you move up the, the social ladder, things get more expensive, quality gets better and things are better. And then you had, even though I'm not Gen X, I just identify with them so much. Uh, like, that really has this idea like talk about like maybe it's not real Mexican food. I don't care. I'm poor and I'm hungry and it's available. It's there. And then you have this, this millennial generation that was more existential in their view of like, Oh, well, I'm going to love Taco Bell ironically, which fits in because I'm also poor and, but let's not like the things that are good. Like look at the whole hipsterism mentality and movements of the early two thousands that nineties was very much. I don't want to fit in. And so ironically you have these, this whole culture that became outcasts and loners together creating a group identity of people that didn't want a group identity. You have that redefined in the early 2000s, in the 2000s to 2010s, with hipsterism that came out of Gen X that tried to find another way to find their own significance in the absurdism of, of the ridiculousness of time going on and the world being a disaster, and them saying basically... I am different because I like these normal things. Like I'm specifically and ironically embracing things that shouldn't be liked because I like them. What makes me different is by choosing the thing that's the exact same, but I'm choosing it for a different reason. It's like, hey, if I buy into determinism of my own free will, that's breaking the the system that's a loophole and is it really a loophole it 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 looks ironic to me with the gen x mindset but but then if you take if you take it for what it is there there's a lot of sense that it makes given the context of like i said how the generation grew up and stuff then you have these uh the the gen z people I, we're just going to forget about gen y at all 
uh, that is embracing the absurd to extreme amounts, but, but also looping back in the weirdest thing I think is that Gen Z is the closest to the boomer generation that there's ever been since the, the boomer generation. It's all a circle. And is that sort of indicative of the determinism of society? There's an old, old proverb, right? And let's see if I can get it right, but you'll sort of understand what I'm saying if you haven't heard it. Uh, I made a meme about it one time. Hard times make hard men, um, which is like war creates warriors. Hard uh, Hard men create good times. Good times create soft men. Soft men be create hard times. She's basically saying, okay, so so you say like there's a culture of war and then people become better so that they can win the wars, end it, create peace and prosperity. Peace and prosperity creates weak people and then when a force comes and sees that, they try to take that, which creates war, which then necessitates the creation of hard people to become warriors and rise up. And it's a never ending cycle and it just goes on and on. Uh, men just being the generic term that was used in that proverb because it goes back to like Greece or Rome or some, some type of thing. There's another, uh, um, proverb that I, I, I've heard it. I just learned it recently and it was in the context of Italy, but I think it's another thing that probably goes back even further. And every, Every culture has their own version of it too. Um, and, and what I heard was, it was from a Malcolm Gladwell book, right? And I think he said, uh, uh, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, which basically means, and it's, this is based on uh, sort of a fact of, of um, what's the, ter- when wealth is handed down generation, generational wealth. And it's, Within three generations, most wealthy families lose their generational wealth. That's an economic statistic that I have researched. I believe they said that within two generations, 70% of families that had amassed wealth and moved up to the upper class socioeconomically have fallen out of it. And within three generations, 80% of Wealthy people have not. So it's so weird right now that we're obsessed with with sort of villainizing the the rich and upper class. There's there's three billionaires that everybody loves to hate: um, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and uh, what? Um, Bill Gates. Right. The the funny thing I think. And I'm, I'm not too smart on why people hate them. Um, maybe I hate them. I don't know. Also, I mean, it doesn't matter, right? But the, the whole point is they're, they're actually not that representative of when we say the upper class. A lot of what that means, too, actually needs to include a lot of the politicians, CEOs. People are always saying, ah, oh, the billionaire. But here's the thing. Historically, they're... Fa- Unless, um, statistically, most of those families that people say they're going to hate will not be in the position they are within three generations. Why is that? Because people that are raised 
rich do not know how to become, to maintain that level of wealth. Yes, it happens sometimes. It happens occasionally. Something I love is that it seems like everybody now knows the word dystopian, but nobody knows the word anecdotal. Because I've seen so many memes all the time on social media, which I realize is not the best source of, of information for facts or gauging the public's opinion on things. But I'm always seeing these examples, and it's always it takes one example of a person or a company, and then it says, this is indicative of the dystopian future that we're living in. Well, actually not. If you understood vocabulary and you understood statistics and you knew what anecdotal evidence is, that is uh, only proof of it in and of itself. If you wanted to prove that we're living in a dystopian society, you'd really need to post more about trends. You're making an appeal to emotion. Now I'm, I feel like I am sounding way too much like, uh, I don't know, some, some libertarian radio host would actually, I don't really care. Here's my thing. I just want to know what I'm supposed to do. All I care about is I just want to feel loved. And I don't mean by a person. I just want to feel like there's nice people. I'm just nice, right? Like I'm also an asshole. I'm not really actually that nice, but I I have like four friends that are kind people. And the reason that we've been very strong friends and stayed friends for a good amount of time is here's the thing. Uh, we are supportive of one another. We're into some of the same things and we support each other's endeavors and ambitions. And I mean that in like the truest sense too. Uh, we all have the capacity for talking really terrible about people which are not in our circle. And I like that. And I would will say that too, that we, you know, we could probably do a study of, you know, the whole, um, you know, so sociological or maybe anthropological studies about our behaviors and why we do that or why we're predisposed to do that. But I don't really know, um, whether we're acting normal or not. But did we even talk about Silver Linings Playbook today? I love Silver Linings Playbook. It's a really good movie. I still can't watch it yet, though. Oh, let me bring up another movie that I really saw that I love. Uh, Climax, also on Amazon. It is by Gaspar Noe, and uh, it is fascinating because I was looking up lists of movies that are sort of like... Um, Movies that are very unsettling will, will like not hor psychological horror, but also like disturbing and stuff. And I'm not talking all the way about like torture porn, even though, uh, those movies I've watched, I watched the, the new saw movies. I forget what they're called circle or something, but you know, like I love a very violent or film, but I'm sort of obsessed with finding all the more psychologically horrific movies. Climax is fascinating because it is two movies in one. He directed two movies where 
one is basically this this really nice film, and then the second one, I mean, like it, it's one movie, it's one setting, and the same characters, but then like the second, it, it's basically if like if they took the Saw movies and they split them up, and they actually even did like credits and a title sequence in between all these characters getting together and being like, oh, everything's going fine, and then in movie start the second one immediately. Oh, cut to now they're waking up in this place. And it's anyway, I'm, I really wanted to talk about my book because, and, and, uh, I'm working on a movie now. That's what I'm really getting into. I've gotten, I've written a new script for short. I'm, that's, that's my new project. I'm working on editing my book because I talked to a couple, which and probably maybe I'll talk about that next week, but uh, the book is going really well, and I have this plan. I wanted to turn one of the chapters into a short movie. I'm talking like a five, ten minute short, and enter it into some film contests. But I actually decided, like, I was just inspired to write this other thing, which is a thing that I've been thinking about for a long time. And so I've been working on writing the screenplay. To that, I have the outline done. And I'm sort of working on adapting that, and then I'm going to make production plans and hope. And my goal is I'd like to shoot this in January, so that it can start being edited and get ready for festivals next year, or stuff. But uh, that's that's sort of under the auspices that uh, I'll be alive, and that any of us will be alive. That's not a direct threat to myself. That's just an existential statement of who knows. Who knows what's going on? I really, I really am tired of existing though. It's hurt. It, it's, it's tiring and it's lonely and it, it is absurd. And I think my brain chemistry doesn't help sometimes because these last two days I've been on such highs and such lows. Like it's insane that the fact is the same day that I sat down and wrote the outline to that treatment i was also uh majorly depressed in the morning okay this is this is only supposed to be funny okay don't be don't be shocked by this um i i don't remember when probably like two weeks ago i did i did call uh the veterans crisis hotline um, just for fun. It's just a thing I like to do, you know, check in, make sure they're doing secret shopping, secret shopping, suicide prevention, right? And, uh, the person, the, the counselor was talking with me and, you know, they ask you about what's wrong and why you're thinking about the things you are and what your sort of immediate plans are. And one of the things they, they try to get you to finish before they will end your call is they want to make a safety plan of what are some activities you're going to do. They specifically usually ask you three. Uh, I say usually like I, um, anyway, asked me what was some activities that I could do tonight, that night that would help me focus outward, not on my mind and my thoughts. And I, I said, I'm going to go, uh, maybe read, read a book. And they're like, Oh, that's great. That's a really good idea. I think that'll be good for you. What's you reading? And I said, I'm rereading The Bell Jar, which uh, ironically was one of my ex-girlfriend's favorite books. And they said, oh, that's a classic. That's so great. And then I thought, 
you don't know what the bell jar is. The public school system clearly failed you. It's not a great thing, probably, for a crisis counselor to be recommending for people to read. I'm saying that so jokingly, they were very kind, it's not their fault, and maybe they are right, and also maybe I didn't understand the book enough. Should we go back into that book? I think there was an episode early on where I talk all about that book. Pat reads that book, he rejects that book. He reads that book in the book book version of the Silver Linings Playbook, which was replaced, like we've said so many times, by... Uh, farewell to arms, and he throws it out the window because he's like, I don't want to be reading this shit. Oh, also, mind-blowing fact, mind-blowing fact, if you made it this far, I can't get over this. I can't. This is a true fact. Movies sometimes get released under different names when they're released in different countries. In Russia, Silver Linings Playbook was released under the title My Boyfriend is a Psycho. My boyfriend is a psycho. I can't handle that fact. There's too much wrong with that. There's too much hilarious about that. There's too much right with it. I just don't even know what to think. I don't know how to absorb that fact. And so I'm going to leave you on that. And I just want you to think about that. All right. Silver Linux Playbook in Russia was released as My Boyfriend is a Psycho. If I was Russian, this podcast could be the My Boyfriend is a Psycho cast. Would it be better? Would it be worse? Who knows? None of it matters. Guys, thank you so much. As always. And tune in next week. And every week until we decide we're not going to do this anymore. Uh, to the Silver Linings Playbook, which as far as I know, the only podcast solely devoted to talking about Silver Linings Playbook, the movie, and the Silver Linings Playbook the book. Think about that fact I told you. Let me know what you think. Hit us up in the socials or email us at silverliningsplaycast at gmail.com uh, And until next time, we'll see you down the road at Excelsior. He's kind of crazy. She's a little insane. Keeping energy really messes with his brain. One is divorced. The other's husband is dead. That's why it's so messed up in the head. It's a silver linings play cast. Oh, yeah.